Hi there. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Withdrawal, a weekly discussion on antidepressants and the issues surrounding them. Hello, this is James and welcome to Let's Talk Withdrawal, a weekly podcast discussing antidepressants and mental health. This week we talk to Stevie. Stevie talks about her experiences taking antidepressant drugs and her severe and protracted reaction to trying to withdraw. She also talks about what help and support she received and what approaches she took to support herself during the most difficult times. Stevie, thank you so much for talking with me today. I wanted to start really by asking about your background and what led you to being prescribed an antidepressant in the first place. Oh, thank you, Jane. Um, it's, uh, I, I'm really absolutely delighted to be part of your podcast and be able to have the opportunity to tell the story of what has happened to me. Um, I, um, I was working in the manufacturing industry and uh, I was, it was quite stressful work. But it was good. Um, stress when you're enjoying yourself is fine. However, things changed and suddenly it was very stressful and it wasn't so fine any, anymore. And I was really starting to um, feel quite anxious at times. I, I decided to deal with it by taking redundancy and setting myself up as a consultant. And that seemed to help, other than I was struggling with. Um, Sleeping when I went away on business. It was intermittent. I could sleep perfectly well at home. But uh, when I was away on business, I found it quite difficult. And also, I, um, I had um, quite bad PMS. Um, I was, we're talking about 1996. I was 41 years old. And I decided, having tried a variety of natural means of trying to help myself, that Actually, the main problem was if I could go away on business and just know I was going to be able to sleep all right, I'd be fine. So I took myself off to the doctor and asked for some sleeping tablets. And it didn't quite go as I expected it would. He asked me a variety of questions and then announced that I was, in his opinion, on the edge of a clinical depression which I had to look up when I got home and found out that that was the current terminology for on the edge of a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. And I left his surgery clutching a prescription for Siroxan, an antidepressant. And Stevie, how did you feel about being given an antidepressant? Did your doctor talk to you much about it? What did you feel as you walked away with the tablets? Absolutely shocked. Um, it just was not what I was expecting at all. Um, I felt very scared. Uh, by what he told me, as he was suggesting uh, that something really terrible was about to happen to me if I didn't take these drugs. Um, he told me that I had got um, an imbalance in my brain, that my brain wasn't producing enough serotonin, um, and this, this drug would correct that. Uh, he said that um, if there was nothing wrong with me at all, this drug would do nothing. Mm. However, um, it was there to balance serotonin in my brain and therefore I should feel benefit and uh, this is what I should go and take. And even at that point, started questioning him about it because I already knew about the issues with the benzodiazepines mm. and how people became addicted to them. And so I quite clearly asked him about addiction and I was assured that this was a new class of drug. They were completely different from the benzos and uh, there would be no chance of me becoming addicted to them. I think probably that led on to him saying to me that if there's nothing wrong with you, these drugs will do nothing. Um, and, and, and that was quite a powerful conversation. And after, you know, we're talking about 21 years and I still remember it very well. And to me, or when I left, I was, yeah, shocked. And the fact that he told me I got depression didn't really make any sense to me. It's not at all what you went in describing, is it? Many people have problems with stress and insomnia, but then to rapidly jump to an overarching diagnosis, that quite often leads only in one direction, doesn't it? Well, it appears so. And to be, be labelled uh, that I've had depression, again, my understanding of depression was people could not, not do, you could not do anything if you were depressed. You know, that's, that's what the word depressed means, that your mood is depressed and you can't do anything. 
and uh, I was quite capable of doing things. So I came out clutching my uh, prescription for Siloxat and I went through the patient inf information leaflet with a fine tooth comb. And in two specific places in that patient information leaflet, right near the beginning and towards the end of it, said very specifically that Siloxat is not addictive. I think the first phrase was Siloxat is not addictive and later on it said uh, you cannot become addicted to Siloxat. And I remember that again very well and I have um, more recently seen a copy of that uh, patient information leaflet and that's exactly as it, as it was. And Stevie, did it take you a while to build up the courage to take the first tablet or did you just dive straight into it? I think I ploughed straight into it memory um that was my doctor and i believed what he told me that's what we do isn't it we go to them for advice and support and we trust them to have our best interests at heart and stevie what was your experience of the initial months of taking the siroxat i remember to start with feeling um quite um numb like i've been drugged um for the first three weeks or so and um very dry mouth yawning all the time but in general, I think that what I spotted straight away was the fact that I was sleeping okay. And that was, that was what I wanted at the time. There wasn't anything else that, it, that, that was really on the horizon for me. The main thing was that I could, I could trust that I could go to sleep. And that's what the stock fat gave me. And interestingly, looking back over time, um, that is really the only thing that that did ever give me, I think, um, was that I could sleep. And did you feel hungover or fatigued the next day, or did it not affect you in that way? Uh, no, after after two or three weeks, I felt like me again, <clears throat> most definitely. And so I thought, oh, okay, right, well, if this is what's required. However, I was also quite clear in my own mind that this was only going to be a very short-term thing. Um, and so once I started feeling better, I had a plan that, um, and this wasn't particularly discussed with my doctor, that I would take this drug for maybe about six months and then I would stop. And so that's what I did. Okay, so what happened when you came to stop? Well, it, uh, I felt very poorly, very quickly, and I was very dizzy. I felt very sick and very dizzy. That's the main thing that I remember, and the dizziness was so extreme that I went to see the doctor and he said I had labyrinthitis and he gave me drugs for labyrinthitis. Mm. So at that time, there was no recognition by me or by him um, uh, that these drugs could possibly give you withdrawal. Um, of course, it was never discussed. I mean, I never heard of, I never heard of the word withdrawal, really, mm. in connection with that particular drug. Only with benzos. And Stevie, can I just ask, did you stay on the same dose of Siroxat or did you increase over that time? I, um, for the first six months, I think I, I was given the, the usual standard 20 milligram tablet to start with. I probably took for about three or four months and then I dropped as quickly down to 10 milligrams as I could and I was able to do that easily, so that was fine. Then I don't actually remember now. There was no issue about tapering or anything, so I think I kind of spent that 10 milligrams. Maybe, maybe took half a tablet, quarter of a tablet, maybe, and, mm. and, and then stopped. Mm. Uh, looking back now, of course, three weeks of nausea and a bit of dizziness feels like nothing. And so you'd been hit with unexpected withdrawal effects after six months. So what happened next? Did you re-establish on the drug, or did you try something different? What happened? Well, life events happened next really. Um, I my mother died and I had a couple of miscarriages. Um, and so probably about nine months after uh, that time of stopping I had the third miscarriage and I was in a bit of a mess. I was feeling very anxious again and I was having trouble sleeping again, which of course looking back would be hormone disturbances from third miscarriage mm. and again my age um however of course when i went back to see the doctor and, and said um, that i was struggling to sleep again um and having trouble with pms again he said oh well you might as well take the rock it seemed to suit you didn't it and i said well yeah i guess it did so i came away much more willingly this time to take it mm. and uh looking back from that point i was never able to stop 
And Stevie, that second period of taking Siroxat, how long was that for? Uh, well, that second period of taking Siroxat was for, for many, many years, apart from it was interspersed with constantly trying to stop. Mm. So I think that um, from... So we're, we're talking about this time, about late 97. So from 1998 to 2000 is really when I was then... Um, pretty sure that I wanted, I was okay now and I was going to stop mm. and each time I did I just became ill again straight away um, I would go and see the doctor and say I'm ill again, I'm really anxious again and during that two year period trying to stop and start again it became clear or it appeared to become clear that I had quite a generalised anxiety disorder because it was anxiety like I'd never experienced before. And I, I just thought, okay, this is me. I, I am this person. I am a terribly anxious person and I need to take this drug. But, you know, by about 2002, there was a voice caught in my head saying, no, this isn't you. I, I, I do. It was part of me saying, no, this isn't you. I do not believe that this is really you, um, that you are this person who's so anxious that you need to take a drug forever, which is what the doctor was suggesting. So, you know, we've got the beginnings of, of, of a good internet by then. And I, I did some research and found really quickly, this was in 2002, really, really quickly, that there was a load of people out there who were struggling in the same way as me. And that effectively, I was a prescription junkie. I was addicted to these drugs. Um, there was a term called discontinuation syndrome, which was going around. Um, Many people refused to use that term, you know, and I was one of them. As far as I was concerned, it was withdrawal um, and that it wasn't right to use the term discontinuation syndrome because that made it sound like something it wasn't. However, equally, the term addiction wasn't quite right because I knew that it wasn't a drug that I needed to take more and more of, like a street drug, as long as I stayed taking a small dose. And I got it down to quite a low dose, but a small dose I was fine. Um, the moment I went below a certain amount, then I became terribly ill. And Stevie, that realisation that it was dependence and withdrawal, how did that make you feel? It made me feel utterly, utterly terrible. I felt like a terrible failure because I couldn't get off this stuff. Uh, I, I questioned all the time, why had I taken it? Why had I done this? Why hadn't I found something else? But right in the early days, again, as I mentioned, you trust what your doctor tells you. Trust what your doctor says when they're telling you that you have a, an anxiety disorder, you know, you need to take this stuff. Um, a tremendous number of very strong negative emotions, which got worse and worse each time I tried to come off and fail. So between 2002 and 2006, I kept trying, mm. constantly trying and constantly failing um, to come off. and. Um, I kind of had uh, um, a metaphor for this. I called it my burning building analogy. That mm. it was like um, the first time that this happens to you, it's like walking into a burning building and finding it's a bit hot and coming out. And then the next time that I try to stop, I'm working, walking in a burning building and I get hurt a bit more. And the next time I walk in and I get burnt a bit more. And it was like that because each time that I went into withdrawal and I tried to stop. Each time the symptoms got worse and worse and worse. Mm. So very high anxiety, insomnia, totally unable to sleep, bangs in the head through the body so that there was no way I could sleep, constantly jerked away, um, couldn't eat, not a thing, no appetite, um, weight loss, tremendous weight loss. And um, one morning, after the longest I had stayed off, it was seven weeks, and, and one morning feeling basically suicidal. And I knew always the same thing. It was always the same pattern, Jane. If I reached out and took a syringe full of that stuff again, within 36 hours, I would be fine. It's so cruel, isn't it? Because that desire in you to be free of the drugs that you know you shouldn't and don't want to depend on for the rest of your life, compared to the knowledge that you can do something about it by giving in and taking more, that tension is unbearable, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, so 
taking a small amount of it and, and, and feeling better and then I you know I go back up to 10 milligrams I managed to get down I mean I became an expert on tapering um, I was taking the liquid um, I had discussions with my doctor about how I could dilute it further down I had discussions with pharmacists about getting me smaller and smaller syringes um, so that I could incrementally take smaller and smaller amounts. I even got my doctor to phone GlaxoSmithKline to see if they had advice about it or if they would be willing to provide me with a um, with, with, with a, a more diluted dose. But of course, they wouldn't. My doctor shrugged her shoulders and said, sorry, I'm not getting anywhere with that. And, and she couldn't advise me either. She was really worried about advising me to dilute it further. And I, I watered it down. I watered it down myself. Anything try and get lower and lower and lower. And what was the reaction of your doctor to what was happening? It's hard to tell. I always got the impression that she really wanted to help me. Um, but there's always the other side of the coin, James, which I'm sure that you've experienced as well, and many of us in the same situation as I found myself in, was the element of whether you were believed or not, mm. and whether you were just being patronised, basically. I, one of the things throughout this whole process, one thing has been a terrible struggle is getting medical people in the medical profession and outside the medical profession to believe what I was saying, that what was happening to me was to do with the drug. It just compounds the experience, doesn't it? Not only is my world falling apart physically and emotionally, but I'm struggling to get that message across to the people that I believe at that stage are the ones who can help me. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I decided by 2006 that I would just stay on the lowest possible dose I could. Um, I've been through one marriage failure, and uh, in 2006 I met the man who is my, now my husband, and I decided that for a while that I'd just stick on this low dose. It seemed to work for me, I seemed to be fine, I seemed to be leading a normal life. Um, I felt anxious, but what I considered to be perfectly proportional anxiety for me as a person it fitted with who I thought I was um so I can't look back and go well on the rocks that you know I never felt I was numbed or had my emotions numbed or anything like that but again I was taking such a small amount that I never considered it was a therapeutic dose mm. I always saw it as something just holding the withdrawal at bay the other side of that barrier waiting to get me any moment mm. and if I could just Please do. A few days, so this is a couple of days before I had a really terrible episode where the movement disorder started. It was Friday the 13th of November, interesting date, Friday the 13th. I'd had a few symptoms beforehand where I'd felt some strange things, a lot of dizziness and um, swimming feeling in my head. Friday the 13th, woken at 2am by a strong fizzing feeling and tingling, constantly rising up my body from my legs to my head. Pins and needles in my arm. My arms feel like they don't belong to me. My heart is fluttering, lumpy, and then a big bang. I can't sleep. As I drop off, I get a bang in my head, which forces me awake, and I feel what 
I take to be a surge of adrenaline. I went to see the doctor that same day. I got an emergency appointment and the doctor can find nothing wrong. She takes a lot of blood samples. As the day progresses, my symptoms worsen. I have these feelings of low-level fear accompanying waves of fizzing up into my head. My heart is beating hard. I have terrible diarrhoea. And I felt I was in unexplained withdrawal. The following day, very little sleep, continuous waves of fizzing and stronger sensations of fear rising up my body. My chest is tight. My heart is banging and feeling irregular. Pins and needles in my limbs. Each time I try and go to sleep, a different muscle jerks me awake. I'm starting to feel very scared. My body feels as if there is constant movement inside, a constant churning effect hidden from the outside of my skin. I'm crying and I'm very frightened. Then Sunday, the 15th of November. In the day, my symptoms were the same as yesterday, but the fear getting stronger and stronger. Then 7.30 in the evening while I was eating my dinner, a wave of pure terror flooded over me. The terror was immense, surging through my body and my mind. My chest got tighter and was racing. I forced myself to get up and move about, but my chest got tighter and I couldn't feel my legs. I was getting weaker. The terror subsided and my head cleared, but I could barely walk, and I managed to stagger to a chair and I sat down. My limbs began to shake and jerk up and down controllably, uncontrollably. I had total clarity in my head and I could describe to my partner what was happening but I couldn't stop the movement. I was joking like I was having an epileptic fit, but I was awake. Then I, then I couldn't speak. I knew what I wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come out. After about a minute, I could speak again, and eventually the shaking and jerking stopped. This whole episode lasted about 10 minutes. I, then I, I wasn't feeling any fear, but my heart was pounding and irregular. And... Uh, that, James, was the beginning of my movement disorder, which since November 2009 has plagued my life. What an awful and frightening experience you describe, Stevie, and it really shows how many bodily systems withdrawal interferes with. You suffer physically, emotionally, psychologically. There are very few parts of your body that you feel are functioning as they should when this happens to you. Well, absolutely, and... Um, I called it, I said that it was withdrawal. I mean, theoretically, it wasn't because I was still taking the same amount of the drug and I actually put the amount up just in case it was withdrawal. Um, I saw various neurologists who said I had, one said I had extra pyramidal symptoms. Uh, I think that's the phraseology, which I've learned subsequently is um, a side effect that people get from taking um uh, taking psychiatric drugs and from antidepressants. Um, I saw another neurologist who suggested that it was um, just very high anxiety. Um, I find it hard to imagine what could have anxiety that high that you could that could happen to your body, but apparently they claim it does. I was convinced that it was something to do with the Siroxat, and I asked to be referred to see David Healy. Uh, this was uh, two years later in September 2011. And he diagnosed that I'd had an adverse reaction between Siroxat and uh, the year before I'd also been put on alindronic acid, which is for osteoporosis. And I desperately didn't want to take another drug. I was told by my doctor that um, I couldn't use diet and exercise to build my bones and that I needed to take this drug. Um, and Dave Healy suggested that this was an adverse reaction um, between. Uh, the serotonin, the change in the way that your body uses serotonin from taking Siroxat and the change in the way that your body uses calcium um, from uh, the alindronic acid. And also there was theoretically, ironically, a third drug in there because I had taken a drug called metoclopramide, which I thought was a basic um, a travel sickness tablet because it's been given to uh, my, 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 my um, partner at the time's 13-year-old daughter. But it turns out that that's a really, really strong antiemetic, and I have no idea. And I only took three of those tablets, but it wasn't long afterwards. These particular tablets alter the way your body processes dopamine, which, of course, is another, um, uh, another brain chemical like serotonin. And I think it was those three things which caused this adverse reaction, which has led to me having
disorder. It's such a distressing thing to experience, and I can't imagine the amount of time you must have spent searching for the cause. Indeed, and um, a, a lot of time trying to un- trying to understand um, what was happening to me, and I always at the back of my mind that it, it, it you know the, the root of it lay with Siroxat. So therefore, I, I felt that I had to stop taking this drug, and I stopped taking it in March 2014. And interestingly, I thought that the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to me was that movement disorder. But that was nothing like what I'd just been through with withdrawal. Things then got really bad. I found once I'd stopped taking the drug that I could barely walk across the room without movement disorder taking over. Uh, I was just jerking violently all the time. I felt absolute terror most of the time. Um, high anxiety doesn't cut it. In fact, I struggle to find words of the English language that actually um, can describe the fear that I felt um, once I was in withdrawal. And this fear just built up constantly. Stevie, I just wanted to ask, did you stop cold turkey? Yeah, effectively. I went down to the absolute lowest dose that I had ever been able to get to without taking it, which was... 1.7 mil, uh, just over, just over three uh, milligrams of a tablet, just over three milligrams of normal. A normal dose is 20 milligrams. I, I, that was the lowest I could manage to get down to. And those additional effects that hit you, did they start straight away, or was there a delay? There was a short time delay, and then they started up, and it was, it was, it was severe and absolutely disabling. Um, and I found I was having basically moment by moment panic attacks. And, and, and they, were ha- they were happening all the time. And my brain started associating external things with causing the uh, waves and waves of panic and terror that I was feeling. So I would eat something and I would have this wave of panic coming over me. And so I think it was a thing that I'd eaten had caused it. Um, I would drink something and a wave of panic and terror would come over me. And this, over the next six to ten months, built up to the point where I was beginning to feel that I was somebody who got something like this 21st century disease that you hear about, that I was allergic to everything because I was having these um, what seemed like allergic reactions to things that I was eating from the point I would be, that I would get these terrible waves of, of fear. Um, so it encompassed everything I ate, things that I ate, things that I drank. Um, if I swallowed any supplements or tried to take um, any tablets of any sort, smells, um, sight, I couldn't look at my phone, I couldn't look at my tablet. It extended to rooms, I couldn't go in my lounge without having panic attacks. I was fine in my kitchen, couldn't go into my lounge. I couldn't go in our motorhome, so we couldn't go on holiday. And... Um, Broadly, I thought I was going completely insane. Well, it's the only sane conclusion that someone can reach when this is happening, isn't it? And presumably there was a fundamental impact too on your personal life and on your socialising and your family relationships. Yes, yes, on everything, on everything. I, um, I, I, I found it quite difficult for the, for the first, the, the, that first period of time to function. Um, I had just about every test going uh, because there was this, external thing that happened to me which was the violent jerking which I could see my doctor was a bit freaked by. Um, I had every test going and um, I went and had a whole range of tests to see whether my immune system was causing this problem. Uh, I went up to uh, London and had a range of tests and again they all came back positive. You know I was the illest healthy person that you could think of. Um, I never had a test that came back anything other than average or fine and I guess that at that point that's when the penny dropped that what I was experiencing was effectively phobic reactions that I m- my mind was finding danger everywhere and I was having phobic reactions to a range of things and that was that was a really useful penny to have dropped actually because that made sense um, that, that, that made a sort of sense and I had some therapy which helped deal with some of the phobic reactions so I was able to go in my own lounge again for example um, and slowly over a period of time um, the 
reaction got less and less. Um, and I did a lot more research. Having worked out that it was phobias, I then realised that the likelihood that, you know, this was my mind making a mistake about danger mm. and that my mind was finding danger everywhere, uh, not just externally, but it was finding danger internally. It was reading what was going on in my body and reacting to that. So a normal bodily function would set off a panic reaction in me. And reading some more about this, I realised that what my body was going through was, was trauma, that I'd been traumatised. And I actually went eventually to see um, a trauma therapist and had that diagnosis given to me. Um, Post-traumatic post stress injury not disorder, it's not a disorder because trauma is a perfectly normal response to um, a traumatic situation happening to the body and mind. And what I believe has happened is over time, as each time I withdrew, my body and mind reacted more and more badly to it. Um, by the time I got to finally going into this cold turkey withdrawal, it was just basically more than my body and mind could take. And I really did go into um, uh, in, into full post-traumatic stress. It's understandable, isn't it? To be enduring those effects and to not know the specific cause, the panic and the anxiety, is our body desperately trying to keep us from further harm or further damage? Exactly, exactly. And I think there must be something in the um, antidepressants which affect some part of the brain which is monitoring for danger mm. and um, as a consequence we become when you stop taking it hyper aroused there's like a rebound effect and you become hyper aroused and that effectively is also part of uh, the trauma the trauma process and i found something that was really, really useful uh, and which really helped me understand what was happening to me and led me to go and um, see a trauma therapist. And I found, I read a number of books about trauma and I read a particularly good book called Waking the Tiger by Peter A. Levine. And in the second part of his book, he documents what very, very clearly what happens to people as they um, once they've been through an event which traumatizes them, because not everybody, we all go through really bad things in our lives, and not everybody becomes traumatized. However, some do, um, and one person can go through a particular event and another exactly the same event, and their minds and bodies will deal with it differently, and nobody knows why one mind and body becomes traumatized and why does one, one doesn't. What Peter Levine describes is the body, when, when, when we do have something really bad happen to us, whatever it is, we go through something called the fight or flight process. And that's something that everybody listening will have heard of that fight or flight. But there's a third element to that, which isn't usually talked about. And it, 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 it's the fact that some people freeze, um, some mammals, the, the, the mammalian process, where um, some turn to fight, some run away, and some freeze because there is a, a survival instinct in freezing because it looks like you might be dead already, so you're not going to get pounced on your, by your prey and eaten. And freezing and immobility is part of the trauma process, which leads to feelings of helplessness. And he describes once someone has been traumatized, this process that they go through, firstly of hyperarousal, where you're looking for the danger which, of course, what my mind did all the time, looking for danger and finding danger in what I ate and what drank, finding danger in everything around me. Um, then dissociation is apparently the next thing, and I wonder whether other people listening to this who've been withdrawn will recognise the hyperarousal and then recognise feelings of dissociation. And mine appeared to be that my body felt like it just wasn't mine. It was an alien being. Um, the things that were happening in it was so alien to anything else I'd experienced before. It was like I was separate from it. It, it, it was something other to me. Um, then 
constriction, we feel constriction um, where we, we're just stuck, basically, stuck and you don't know what to do. And then this feelings of helplessness. And I was definitely stuck. I couldn't run. And that's very, very specific for those of us with, with, from withdrawal because this hyperarousal and dissociation and immobility, it's our body and mind's reaction to what's going on with the drug. And we cannot escape from it. We cannot escape from this withdrawal because we can't escape from what's going on in our own bodies and minds. You know, we can't stand up to an abuser. We can't fight them. We can't run away. It's there. It's inside us. And we're reacting to what's inside us. It's awful, isn't it? And you're right, because it's coming from within you, quite often you feel that the only appropriate response is to give in and let it have its way with you. But that's so difficult to accept, isn't it? Because we're problem solvers and we want to try and make things better. Exactly, exactly. And of course, one of the, one of the hyperarousal symptoms that, that you hear of is we're desperately looking for solutions. Part of the hyperarousal is about hunting for solutions trying to find what's wrong with you, trying to get away from you think, from what you believe has caused you the danger. It's all part of the process and all part of a traumatised mind and body. Mm. Um, however, on the positive side, and I'm conscious of the fact that my story isn't, it doesn't sound a very positive one or a very good one, um, that here I am four years down the line, um, because it was March 2014 when I, when I went cold to that, I am recovering, and that actually the trauma process is part of the recovery process. It's a natural process that your body and mind has to go through um, if you have been through a trauma to actually come out the other side and recover. And being the trauma therapist that I did, she was quite clear in being able to show me that my body was going through a natural process and I was coming out the other side and that I am in recovery. And that is a very positive thing and really, really helpful for me. And whilst I'm not out of the woods yet and my system constantly reacts to certain things and it's a minute list of things in comparison to what it was, um, and I still do have a movement disorder, it's far, far, far less than it was. And so I am hoping beyond hope that still the day will dawn when my nervous system has recovered enough that the movement disorder will disappear into the background mm. and that my body will come back into some sort of balance. Well Stevie it's really good to hear that you have made so much progress. It sounds like the movement disorder is perhaps what troubles you most at this stage. Is that true? Yes absolutely absolutely because it's um it, it's there as a as, as um it, it's there at, at, at an end point of any sort of stress that I feel so um I can't, I can't handle stress much at all, and um, there, it, yeah, for me, it, it goes beyond just a feeling of stress or a bit of anxiety or whatever in dealing with something. My body then turns this into this jerking, um, as if I'm having an epileptic fit. And I, um, if you remember the Victoria Derbyshire program that we saw on BBC Two, um, there was one where she was talking about. With antidepressant withdrawal mm. and how there were so many of us that had such terrible trouble either not able to get off these drugs at all or the sort of terrible things that happened to some of us when we tried to get off there, were, there was a man there uh, um, and his face was pixelated out but he was standing in his kitchen and his body was jerking uh, just like mine does and I so felt for him me too. And if people out there could witness these effects, then no one would take these drugs. But we don't find out the risk until it's far too late, do we? No, absolutely not. And I mean, if you look at the, 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 the patient information that Mr. Ox at now, it will talk about tremor and muscle jerks and jerking, you know. But you read those words and you go, oh, I might twitch a bit. <laughs> How? When it, if, if, if you are going to get, you know, a movement disorder from these drugs, it, there are, there are many instances now that we can see on the internet of people who have um, developed movement disorders from taking a range of um, what, what are called psychiatric drugs, which we now include antidepressants in those. And, 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 it's most and it's the most terrible thing to do to people. And it seems like it's almost considered to be some sort of collateral damage. Oh, this might happen to a few people, but it probably won't be you. Well, the fact that it happens to a few 
is terribly, terribly wrong. And this class of drugs is totally unfit for purpose. There is no proof that it really helps people with depression. Um, it may help the few who are deeply, deeply depressed because it raises something in them to bring them out of their depression. But those of us who have a predisposition to anxiety, the last thing we want to take, if we do want to take a drug, um, is a drug that is going to have that effect, that is going to raise your predilection to anxiety higher to the point where your nervous system becomes totally dysfunctional. So my nervous system is dysfunctional, my digestive system is dysfunctional, and my musculoskeletal system is dysfunctional. And again, if we could explain those things to people before they went to their GP, they would think very differently because the adverse effects and the risks are downplayed and the reality is so different, isn't it? It is, absolutely, absolutely. These are mind-altering drugs. They are brain-altering drugs and they are body-altering drugs because the majority of your serotonin is made in your gut anyway, which is why um, most people find that their gut is affected in some way during this process um some more than others so much worse than others and stevie i wanted to ask you mentioned that some therapy was helpful to you at various points in your story and i wondered if there was anything else that helped you or continues to help you on your healing journey well one of the things that's been enormous to help to me is that i am um a trained nlp therapist so prior to any of this happening to me i gained a bit of an understanding about how um minds work and how our thinking affects us um, and I think that that personally for me has been very helpful in being able to bear what's been going on um, that I've been able to always however bad it got over the last four years um, being able to know deep down inside I've got the inner resources to be able to bear it and that very much came from um, what I learned in my, my, my NLP training um, and, the, and, and, and it was a, a form of NLP therapy that I did have which helped with some elements of the, of the phobic responses and, and, and I guess that it was because of my training that I was able to identify that I was having these phobic star responses um, very, I think it's, it, it would have been quite difficult at, at a time when you don't know what, if you don't know completely what's happening for you. And, and I have felt that I have had a bit of an understanding and been able to assess at some sort of distance and being able to look at what's been happening to me and, and have a, a bit of an understanding of it. And that's helped me cope with it. There have been some other things which I felt, felt have, have helped me enormously. and. And I guess it's part of the knowing that you can bear it, knowing that you can bear whatever happens to you. Um, I call it learning to self-soothe because when when you're a child and things are really bad and you're really frightened, you can run to your parents, you run to your mum and she puts her arms around you and, and, and the fear drains away and you start to feel better. And what I found that there was, I, I couldn't find anything or anybody to start with who could soothe me. I had to learn to soothe myself. Um, and uh, lying in a hot bath, lying up to my neck in hot water with a bucket load of Epsom salts in there was really, really helpful. Um, I, would, I do still listen to guided meditations. I find them very useful. Mindfulness itself is quite difficult, very difficult um, with mindfulness, bringing yourself into your own body, if your own body is doesn't feel like yours or is feeling deeply uncomfortable or if I'm, I've got the uncontroll, uncontrollable jerks. Whereas being able to listen to a guided meditation where I could focus on someone else's words and follow that, I found that very, very helpful. YouTube is my source of some excellent guided medita meditation. So distraction of the conscious mind, really, um, I found very, very helpful. Um, making music. During this period from uh, when I went into withdrawal, one of the things that I, I couldn't do when I was in withdrawal, it really affected my ability to be able to breathe, uh, to be able to sing, 
I sang in choirs and I had to stop doing that. Um, so I learned to play the ukulele. Um, my withdrawal has brought me a wonderful little musical instrument which has helped me keep my sanity. And I've learned to play, play the ukulele. And um, eventually my ability to sing came back. And uh, being able to go out when I felt really ill and out of control and sit with people and sing and play the ukulele has brought me enormous joy. And um, I knew that I wasn't going mad. I knew that if I could do that and I could feel that joy with those people playing this little wonderful instrument, then I was going to be all right. That's fantastic. And it reminded me that at times during this process, you almost lose a sense of self, don't you? So to find creative things that make you feel a sense of worth again is so important, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You need to finding something that, that you feel passionate about. And you have found your podcast and this enormous contribution that you're making to bringing to the attention of the world. Um, what um, many of us have been through um, that's your passion at the moment and, and, and I applaud you for that and it's absolutely wonderful and I'm so happy to hook my wagon on the back of your passion and mine has been making music and that's been absolutely wonderful um, I, I, I also when you read about some of the things that helps people um, when they are struggling with very high anxiety or, 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 or whatever those sorts of problems writing it down writing a journal and during the time I was trained to be an NLP therapist, we were encouraged to keep a journal. And I went back to that um, about um, nearly a year ago. I started writing the journal again. And I would make myself write something every morning because mornings are worse. Um, during withdrawal, I found sleeping was so very, very hard. Um, some nights I barely slept at all. And mornings were just absolutely terrible when I felt at my worst. And so I'd get up and the first thing I'd do, even before breakfast, was pouring out all my fears and feelings out on paper. And that would make me feel better immediately. Mm. And again, you would read about this and go, yeah, it can't be that simple. And I found it was. But writing this stuff down so helped me. Because I would tell people and, and, and you know, they wouldn't get it. Even your closest friends don't really get it and you can't expect them to um you can't expect it to unless you've actually lived this experience yeah. of being in this alien body that and mind that's terrified of everything this led on me to, to i started writing some poetry uh i started writing some poetry and that's been very cathartic as well and i never believed i could write poetry another thing i found was someone to talk to who didn't judge me yeah. and that was a trauma counselor I felt very judged. So finding someone to talk to was very, very helpful. And lastly, to plot up every day the things that I feel good about and the things I feel gratitude for. And again, that really does make you feel better. It really does make the endorphins rise and push down the anxiety. Any positive feeling that you can find to nurture and grow inside you really does help reduce the power of the negative. Thank you, Stevie. It's really helpful for people out there to know what you felt was beneficial to you during your withdrawal. And I wanted to ask, Stevie, if you had a friend or family member who's considering taking an antidepressant, what would your advice be? I wouldn't be a good person to ask from that point of view. However, I think that I would ask them to firstly look at every other possible option that they might be able to take that doesn't involve ingesting a drug mm. at has a reputation of doing harm um, and is there anything else they could possibly find that might help um, and to and, and to ask them to look at their lives and recognize that possibly what they're feeling is the normal mood swings for want of a better word of life isn't it interesting how the term mood swing has been taken and turned into, if you have mood swings, there's something wrong with you. Well, our moods swing every moment of the day. We move from, through different moods and different emotions. And that's the normal human condition. And we've been led to believe that anything involving a change in your mood from a positive to a negative is a bad thing. Yeah, to look at what else there is out there that can help bring you back into the moment and to quieten your mind so that you can believe that you can deal with whatever life's throwing at you at the moment. Because I think that's part of the problem, that we come to believe we cannot cope and that we cannot bear whatever life is, is giving us at the moment. 
And actually, we can. Because before psychiatric drugs existed, James, we did. You're so right, Stevie. And many would point out that the prevalence of mental illness, if that's what it is, was much less in societies gone by than it is today, even though we have these apparently fantastic, safe and effective psychiatric drugs. And you're right, mood swings has been changed to low mood now, hasn't it? Which implies a chronic thing rather than an episodic thing. Yes, yes, and that it will change. Everything changes. All things must pass, as the very wise George Harrison sang. That's great advice, isn't it? Thank you so much for your time today, Stevie, and for sharing your wisdom and experience too. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. and It's really good to talk to you, and I hope we can do plenty more of it. It was really interesting to talk with Stevie today and I'm sure that you'll have got a lot from understanding how withdrawal affected her and the steps that Stevie took to self-support and to understand her experiences too. I'm really grateful to Stevie and to all of those who have been brave enough to share their experiences for others to hear. Feedback. Thank you so much for getting in touch and giving me your feedback and comments. Just to say also that if you're struggling with withdrawal yourself, you can visit my website, jfmore.co.uk, where there are links to information you may find useful. Please do not increase, decrease or stop your psychoactive prescription medication without the advice and support of a medical or mental health professional. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next week for another episode. And until next time, take care. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk Withdrawal. Come back next week for more news and views. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe in iTunes.